There's an old Irish definition of education. You go from uh, cocksure ignorance to thoughtful uncertainty. <laughs> so I, think, I think thoughtful uncertainty is actually a useful thing in this space, that we, we, we reflect and think even if we don't have definitive answers. We shouldn't feel pressured to have definitive answers on everything yet. I feel if I were to rename my podcast, I would rename it from technically optimistic to thoughtful uncertainty. So that's, okay. that's really great. <laughs> hey, it's Rafi Krikorian, and this is Technically Optimistic. We just finished our first season, which was all about AI. And over the course of those six episodes, we get into the big, complex, and nuanced questions raised by artificial intelligence. We didn't want to simply focus on AI hype or the AI doom. Instead, we wanted to hear from all kinds of voices, like tech experts like Tristan Harris, Meredith Broussard, Roz Picard, sitting U.S. lawmakers like Senator Michael Bennett and Representative Jay Obernolte. But we also spoke to people that don't usually get quite as much airtime, like the Brooklyn-based artist Adi Melanciano, or the Hawaiian geneticist, Kiolu Fox. Not to mention a personal hero of mine, the Nobel Peace Prize winning journalist, Maria Reza. We want you to hear from many different voices with a variety of different perspectives so you can form your own opinions. There's an episode specifically about AI and education, as well as a two-parter about the massive challenges of AI regulation. But it all starts with episode one, it's called AI is at a Crossroads. How do we get here? You'll hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist John Markoff and others. We tell the recent but little-known history of AI and talk about the big, not-so-obvious questions this technology raises. If you haven't heard this episode or the whole season, you're going to want to check it out. I had so many interesting conversations, and they didn't all make it into the six episodes. So over the next few weeks, I'm happy to be sharing a few bonus episodes. You're going to hear extended discussions with some of the sharp voices we featured, and some new voices you haven't heard from yet. Like today's episode, featuring my talk with Bishop Paul Tai. Paul works in Rome in the administration of the Catholic Church as the Vatican's Secretary of Culture. The point of his job is to engage in dialogue with all sorts of people about all facets of human life today. And he's been particularly interested in artificial intelligence. Turns out, so has his boss, Pope Francis. The Pope acknowledged the potential benefit that artificial intelligence can have on humanity, but he also emphasized the importance of using technology both ethically and responsibly. I love this particular conversation with Paul. He is so thoughtful and so nuanced. And obviously he's a representative of the Catholic Church, but as you'll hear, his main interest is humanity and preserving what makes us human. That is something, in my opinion, that transcends any particular faith, religion, or institution. And hey, listeners, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email with your thoughts, feedback, questions, anything. Write to technicallyoptimistic at emersoncollective.com. Visit us on the web at emersoncollective.com slash technically dash optimistic dash podcast and follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. 
pretty soon we'll have more to tell you about season two, which is coming soon. But for now, enjoy my conversation with Bishop Paul Tai. So maybe to start us off, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about the role you're currently in at the Vatican? How'd you wind up there? Well, it's, it's a kind of complicated story that reflects some of my own training. Way back, I studied law as a student in Ireland, civil law. Subsequently, I studied theology with a lot of interest in ethical issues. And the interface of law and morality was always something I was interested in. The interface of law, ethics, public policy, kind of an issue that I was interested in, was teaching in. And then also I was involved in working in communications in Dublin, at the diocese in Dublin. I was sent to Rome about 15 years ago. I was asked to come to Rome and to work on communications here in Rome. And my interest at the time became on digital communications because that was really just taking off at that time about 15 years ago. And part of my interest really then developed into not just digitalization and its impact on communications and communications technology, of what it was doing to our cultures, to how we form community, to how we communicate with each other, how we have, in many ways, had to rethink so many of our categories of life. And that probably led me inevitably into an interest in other technological developments, such as AI, which also have the potential looking towards the future to impact very much how we think of ourselves as human, how we function as a society, and how we as individuals either prosper or don't prosper. Having worked in communications, for seven, eight years, I was moved to the Vatican's Department for Culture, which is a department which has also had a huge interest in dialogue with the world beyond the church and beyond the areas of faith. How do we dialogue with people who don't necessarily come from a religious background or present as people with religious belief, but who obviously are equally interested in what it is that makes society prosper and make our world prosper? So the juxtapositioning of my interest in digitalization, digital culture, and this interest that I have in dialogue with people who come from without, from outside our own faith tradition, I think probably led to a lot of my involvement in this area. That's amazing. What was the spark that caught your eye, the church's eye, the Pope's eye, around AI specifically? Is there a particular theme that makes you interested in it and feel that you need to be part of that conversation? Yeah, I think, I think our awareness probably of the emergence of AI as a serious issue probably goes back six or seven years ago. And really that was some people from the Valley who came to Rome who asked to have a dialogue with people from around the Vatican and said, you know, we're alert to something that's coming down the road. We're alert to the developments that are happening in AI, machine learning and deeper forms of more autonomous AI. And we think you should be thinking about them because they're going to have, at a minimum, a huge impact socially on society, but also because we think they're making us ask questions about what it is that makes us human, about what it is that distinguishes us as human beings. And increasingly, they were probably saying many of the things that we would have said, well, these are things that only humans are doing. We may find machines capable of doing. So what is it that is distinctively human? And how do we ensure that the emergence of new technologies don't in any way, restrict or impede our basic humanity. One of the issues that I think probably became very important for us there is that as human beings, it's our capacity to relate to each other. 
to be in solidarity with each other, to respect each other as different but autonomous, and also our human ability to think, reflect, to take time about issues. How do we keep that alive and not feel that we have to respond to everything at the speed of the machine? I mean, that's such an interesting way to phrase it. One of the things I've been talking to a lot of people about is the question of values, especially as this technology is being created. Like in in some ways, you can make the argument that power is shifting in our society. Power used to rest with, and still does, with kings and politicians. It, it moved to people with wealth, and now it might be moving to the people who are deploying these technologies, the people who are casting this technology upon us in some way. And I'm curious, both your perspective on the people who are building this technology, but also the lessons that we should be taking as we're sort of like watching this roll out onto our society. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some very immediate issues that I think is probably of a concern, and Pope Francis has spoken about this, is a concern about increased inequality. I mean, we can't deny that in general terms, you know, technology has helped us to overcome many forms of poverty. But at the same time, we're seeing an increase in the disparity between the extraordinary wealth, the minorities, the people who own and who are developing the new technologies and the rest of humanity. With very often, as we look at the future of AI, with the possibility that some of the middle classes get even more squeezed than they are at the moment, there's a material to adjust the distinction between those who have and have an extraordinary abundance of kind of magical figures of wealth and those who don't have. Parallel to that, there's an increase in inequality in terms of access to power. Who determines who will be elected? Who determines how governments will deal with the issues which are of interest to some of those minorities? And one which I think is not unfair to say it's even a question about is there a fracturing of the sense of human destiny? Mm. Some of the people who have made extraordinary sums of money and who have created very worthwhile technologies are increasingly interested in visions about the future of humanity and space travel, which have their own value, but are not necessarily rooted in a sense of the solidarity of all people. They're not necessarily addressing the more basic questions about poverty, about migration, dealing with some of the simple illnesses that are killing so many people in our world. And it's also who decides where all this money, I mean, the United States, particularly in that sector, there's a very noble tradition of philanthropy, but it's not a philanthropy that necessarily is subjected to democratic oversight. True. So a loss of inclusivity, a loss of a sense of, when we think about how are these technologies going to impact humanity, how are they going to change our future, how are they going to shape the world your children may live in? Who gets to be part of that conversation and who gets to be in the decision-making? I mean, that's really one of the core questions, I believe. If you believe the idea that we should be doing some of this work for the public good, for the good of all of us, how do we define what is that good? I was struck by an article I read about two or three years ago, maybe more, but two or three years ago is my guess by Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, in which he spoke about one of the things that was positive about all the people who were working in the area of AI, that they wanted to be at the service of humanity. They wanted to be for human good. They wanted to be person-centered. And he said, that is that is noble. But he also made the point that 
disputing what that means, there's 2,000 years of history to how we make determinations about what's good and what is truly going to promote human well-being and not. I think the other challenge from an ethical perspective is we're having to address these issues globally, mm-hmm. taking account of different religious traditions, different national traditions, different cultures. And one of the things that Pope Francis is trying to make a point is he said, is we trying to determine what is the human good? What are the values that actually promote human flourishing, that enable people to live well as individuals and to live well together in society? That that is a commitment to searching together for the truth of that. We don't necessarily have all the right answers and have them easily to hand. We believe that there is a possibility of making determinations of what are the values that will promote better societies, that will promote the dignity of all human beings, that will promote justice among people. We may not be able to develop hugely deep consensus about that, but we may well be able to identify the things that certainly damage that. Mm. And anything that goes against human dignity, that makes of another person a means to an end, and not a person of value in him or herself is something to be avoided. Anything that fractures our capacity to relate to each other, to converse with each other, to understand each other is something that is very dangerous, hence our preoccupation and worries about fake news. All of those things are wrong because they're going to destroy our ability to flourish as human beings and to live in harmony with each other in society. So if you subscribe to a world that says, look, it's, it's everyone for themselves. Let's get out there and fight for ourselves and use this technology for our own ends. I think we have to acknowledge that that mentality is one that will destroy our humanity, will destroy our capacity to live together. So I'm a bit worried that we're already living in that world. Yeah. Like a lot of these technologies are already being developed within a system that incentivizes money. And so people race to deploy them as quickly as possible. They're less careful about safety standards and data protections and so on. So if we're already living in this everyone-for-themselves kind of world, how do we get out of it? Well, I think, I think part of it is, first of all, recognizing it. If I think of Pope Francis again in addressing technology, he obviously celebrates the goodness of technology, but also would want to recognize that technology on its own is not going to make our world a better place. There's a need for human agency in that. Second point he has brought out very strongly is not just a question of technology being neutral, it could be used for good, it could be used for bad, and we just need to keep it out of the hands of bad actors, or we all make commitments to using it properly. He also recognized that technology is born what he calls uh, a technocratic environment. That the technology is produced by companies or individuals that already have certain values. A lot of our technology today is being developed by commercial companies who are driven by profit motives, who are responding to shareholders who are making certain demands of them. And we have to ask if that environment is necessarily going to be conducive to taking the time of careful ethical decision-making we need before developing and deploying technologies that have a potential to transform us in ways that we haven't fully understood. So that's really, I think, a question about looking beyond the goodwill, badwill of any individual and looking at the systems which are producing them Mm. and asking questions about whether those systems 
do we need to rethink systemically what we're doing? I mean, there are very many admirable things about Silicon Valley and the culture of Silicon Valley and the culture of technology. You know, the, the whole idea of disruption, which can be okay if I'm disrupting an economic model to produce an economic model or a way of production that will be more effective. That's fine. But if ultimately I'm running a risk of disrupting patterns of human living that help to promote human well-being, then I think it's a, it's a different issue. And I, I think there's that need to think more, not just individually, and not just to think about our own immediate peer group, but to think about the impact on a broader section of society and the impacts of that. Like, I mean, I remember being struck very strongly by some of the articles I've been reading about the gig economy, mm -hmm. where the gig economy can promise so many things. But when you learn about the lifestyle of people who are at the lower end of the food chain, trying to meet deadlines imposed by algorithms that any turn them into machines and they will be replaced by machines the day the machines are more effective. That secondly, take no account of their humanity, but also turn everybody into competitors who can do this more quickly, more fast. We have to ask about what that is doing to break down the basic dignity of individuals and the solidarity of society. We'll be right back after a quick break. One of the things I think I heard you say is it's these incentive models that are causing people to behave are actually maybe the root of the issue. And then we need to go and make a direct attempt to change those incentive models so that we can remind ourselves what it is to be human as opposed to simply just optimizing ourselves. Yeah. No, I think, I think education has a huge role with this. You know, we can take our own responsibility for the kind of material I'm reading and the views I'm expressing. But I think we also need to be alert to that there are algorithms there that are reinforcing our biases. Mm -hmm. There are algorithms there that are helping us to associate with others who seem to share our views and who tell us how great we are and how wrong the other people are. Because people want stickiness on their platforms. And one of the ways you keep people on their platform is feeding them what they like immediately, whether it's what they really need or not is a toleration. There is a role for regulation and there has to be a role for regulation because there's a role for better ethics by the companies. But there's also, I think, an awareness of, and certainly my point, a need to help people to be more intentional and more mindful in how they engage with the technologies. To be more intentional means being alert to how the rules of the game play out, how I may find myself trapped in an echo chamber reinforcing my biases, how I may have to make a deliberate intentional choice to engage with materials which may be outside my comfort zone but alert me to a different way of seeing things. I think that is important. Um, attentiveness to, to probably the most precious commodity I have, my time, my attention. Where is my attention going? I need to be more alert to and engaged with that. As we move into the future of AI, I think the values are there, but it's about thinking how we actually 
embed those values or take responsibility for those values in different corporate and institutional sessions. May I ask, is it unusual for the church to be trying to be in front of these issues as opposed to reacting to these issues? Well, I mean, I'm not sure to what extent you could say we are in front. There is a reactive okay. element of okay, it. That's fair. You know, life moves and you try and think and reflect and respond. But I would say that there's an effort here to give it a lot of time and reflection, precisely because it's hitting issues that are at the core of our humanity and of our identity, of what it is to be human. You know, and I think particularly a risk that somehow we lose the sense of the fundamental dignity, value, and worth of every human person. The capacity of human people to grow and to develop. Even on the more pragmatic, immediate things of the future of work. Okay, the technologies can say, well, no technology did in the short term cause a problem with loss of work, but in the long term, it has always generated more work or different forms of work. I would, would like to be optimistic about that, but what we're seeing is maybe a devaluing of a lot of work. We're looking at people looking at solutions, which are, again, very well-intentioned about, well, there won't necessarily be the same need for people to work. We will think about a universal social benefit that we can give all people a universal income. But work isn't just about earning our living. It's not just about acquiring material things. It's in true work to express our creativity. Mm. It's often in true work, certainly pre-pandemic, that we socialized and we formed community and we formed identity. So I think these type of issues for me remain very important and for the church. A lot of our algorithms are working on predictions based on past performance. So determinations of social welfare entitlements, determinations of parole hearings are going to be very much rooted on an analysis. And, and one can see from a logical perspective why that makes sense, because very often it is past performance that indicates how people are likely to behave in the future. But we like to believe that people can change, can change for the better, people can grow, people can change in very real ways. Deep we talk about the language of conversion of people changing. Will there be room left for people to change? Would a judge ever be willing to take a chance on extending mercy to somebody if he or she is afraid that they'll be held to account because the algorithm would have suggested a harder line? I'm curious then, like, what do we need to be educating or teaching these engineers, these creators, the people who are working these systems? Like, what else should they be learning in order to have this broader view? Yeah, this was interesting. Yeah, in, in, I was at a European Union meeting about ethics, and the German ethics council were basically saying everybody should get a strong input from the humanities in their education. Hmm. Everybody is quite strongly, and I can understand, advocating for STEM and the importance of STEM. And STEM is very important. But at the same time, we have to be able to engage with the broader types of humanities that get us reflecting on what it is that makes us human, what it is that really makes life worthwhile, what it is that gives us a sense of identity and shared communion with other people. And that, I think, is partly true of humanities. I think the other thing that I, I know many Catholic universities do that I think is very important is that they insist on everybody studying the humanities as partly respectful of what they're doing, that they have to have some level of humanities input. 
but also I think very often they expose people to social action, social justice, meeting with and working with people who are different from them so that they don't just stay in a bubble, that they realize a broader understanding of life and what it is that makes life worthwhile. So certainly for me, I think it's about enabling people to meet with, to encounter, to learn from, and to grow an appreciation of those who are different from them. I would be curious to your reaction to people who would say, well, that's highly inefficient. <laughs> like, our society is highly inefficient. Shouldn't we be working to make it more efficient in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I think efficiency is a thing. I mean, uh, and I can understand, I've been reading a little bit, I can't claim to be um, an expert on effective altruism, which is kind of trying to say, let's be more rational, let's be, think through what are the things you can do with your life that will make this world a better place, okay? And rather than you going off and training as a doctor and going off to Africa and maybe saving 140 lives in your lifetime, go and be a venture capitalist, made lots of money, and that money then you can send to Africa just do more money than you as a doctor. There is a kind of an efficiency thing there, and it's rational, it's seemingly scientific. But what it bypasses is, who are you in the midst of this? Hmm. Our actions are not just things we perform in a world to have consequences. Our actions become expressions of who we are and how we relate to other people and what our values are. So I think a ruthless focus on efficiency bypasses the question, what, what, towards what do we want to be efficient? <laughs> <laughs> do we want to be more commercially viable? Do we want to be more our technologies to be faster, to be smaller, to be more diffused. And yeah, I can measure that. So my worry a little bit about AI is that it's in the area of measurement. And I'm not sure that all the most important human values and the things that make our life worthwhile are things that we can measure. I'm curious then what you're excited about in this space. I mean... There's so much out there. So, like, I'm just curious, what, what would be a thing that, that catches your eye? No, I mean, I can't, I think we have to step back every now and again and recognize and celebrate some of the extraordinary achievements of this, okay? You and I are now speaking at a quite a distance from each other to a technology that is relatively, and it's allowing a type of conversation. And I think what we have to do is, my hope in this area, I've always tried to avoid the area of condemning and saying what's wrong and try and see what is the real potential of some of the technologies that are emerging. Where can they really make a difference? And how do we ensure that those potentials are realized? Just this morning, I was listening to something on BBC and they're talking about in Edinburgh's big hospital in Oxford working together with Microsoft on new forms of analysis of x-rays and the AI being able to process so much more information that can allow for much more accurate diagnostics, which is something that then theoretically has the potential to liberate the doctor, the nurse, to be more attentive to the patient. I'm also conscious that other critics have written the real risk in our world is if that technology develops. It's just, no, the doctor will now be expected to see more patients and process more people in the name of efficiency. Whereas the type of efficiency that is there in a doctor listening, being sympathetic, being understanding, being attentive, being present 
to his or her patient are the values that I think technology will allow us to cultivate if it's properly freed from some of the biases that inhabit our way of it. I mean, it's almost miraculous. The first draft that a chat GPT can produce on some issue or some topic gets a lot of stuff done very quickly. Now, now I need the human judgment to know, is it right? Is it wrong? Mm-hmm. Has it taken account of all the factors? Could some of the inputs that are in there be skewed already? I think focusing on what it is that as humans we have in terms of judgment making and analysis and senses of solidarity to ensure that those shape the applications of technologies. There are certain values in life, the value of love, the value of forgiveness, the value of tenderness, the value of reconciliation that you can't measure, but are ultimately so many ways more transformative of our world than those things that maybe we can't measure. You mentioned before creativity. And, you know, creativity in some ways a lot of people would say is the, is the domain of humans. What does it mean for us when these systems start seeming to be creative? How does our relationship with that word change? It's an interesting thing. I mean, I've been very much at the beginning of time saying, look, these things can never be creative. They can play around with, so we can give them so much music and ask them to make some new music. And that new music, that's, I think, a derived form of creativity. It can synthesize, it can put together, it can combine, but can it bring something new into that? Not necessarily. But then again, most of us probably don't have those levels of creativity ourselves in our lives. Okay? True. So one argument that I've been kind of struck by is that the those who are truly creative will probably be able to be even more creative using the technologies that will speak the processes. That, but I think that the, the injection of that which is new, which is unprecedented, which takes us into a new domain, I think is where the true creativity emerges. Paul, thank you so much for... I, I, you've literally given me so much to think about. I, I think I'll be thinking about this for the rest of the day. Grand, grand. Paul Tai, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Stay subscribed to Technically Optimistic. We've got more bonus episodes coming in the next few weeks, and I think you're going to be really excited by some of the guests you'll hear from. Our email address is technicallyoptimistic at emersoncollective.com and follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. I'm Rafik Rikorian. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time on Technically Optimistic.